I got to see if I've got my notes in here somewhere. <laughs> there we go. Okay. First Samuel chapter 5. I wonder, as you looked at, maybe at the news this week or what came across your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, I wonder if you find yourself concerned with the world. Concerned or wondering what in the world are you up to in all of this, God? What are you up to amidst all of this chaos? Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to experience that kind of concern. We should look out at the world and we should see sin and mourn over sin. Absolutely. Jesus comes to the, the precipice of Jerusalem. He's looking out over the city as he comes to Passion Week and he weeps over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that, that stones the prophets. Oh, I would have gathered you as, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus weeps when he looks at the sin around him. We should especially see and mourn our own sin. Isaiah chapter 6, he is brought in a vision to the throne room of God, and he falls down on his face, and he says, Woe is me, for I, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And so he sees the sin around him, but then he sees also that he's implicated by that. He is a sinner who is undone in the presence of a holy God. And so when we look at the world around us, we should weep because of the sin out there. And we should also weep because I'm guilty too. I'm guilty too. What we should never be concerned about or freaking out about is whether God has a plan and whether he is in control because God can take the darkest, blackest night and he's at work right in the middle of it. God doesn't need night vision. He sees just fine. He's working just fine all of the time. This morning in our text, we're going to see three truths about God. And I'm borrowing this outline from uh, Dale Ralph Davis's commentary. I've found it really helpful. Uh, our outline this morning is going to be God's supremacy, God's severity, and God's sanctity. His supremacy, his severity, and his sanctity. First, we need to remember the dark night of this circumstance, though. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 22, the, the words of a dying woman, the wife of Phineas, her child has been born, and she's named him Ichabod. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel. And that's the name of her child. The glory is gone. Ichabod means no glory. For the ark of God has been captured. Another way to translate that the glory has departed is that the glory has gone into exile. Like God's glory has gone away from the people and is exiled into the land of the Philistines. First thing we're going to see in these first five verses, though, is that God does still reign supreme. First Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it forth from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground 
before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So in verses 1 and 2, the Philistines probably feel really victorious. They carry the ark away and they place it in the temple of their god Dagon. And this god Dagon was a Canaanite god who was worshipped in this area before the Philistines ever got there. But while he seems to have just been one of many gods that the Canaanites worshipped, the, the Philistines, when they move into the area, he becomes their supreme god. They're, they're pantheists, they believe in many gods, or polytheists, they believe in many gods, but, but he becomes the chief god that they worship. He's a god of agriculture. Some people believe he was also considered to be a god of storms. And so he, he's, he's very important in their society. You might remember from Judges, so Samson is this figure who, who's delivered Israel from the Philistines multiple times, but also ends up getting captured by the Philistines because he has a thing for Philistine women, and uh, Delilah is a bad egg. And, and so he ends up being captured by them and has his eyes gouged out, and he cries to God for, for one last bit of strength. And he's brought, he's brought into this feast, a feast to Dagon. And, and there's this house with 3,000 people up on the rooftop, and he asks God for one last bit of strength. They bring him in here to show him off and mock him. And he leans against the pillar, knocks the house down. 3,000 people die while they were worshiping Dagon. It's interesting here that, that the people, the Philistines, they aren't opposed to believing that Yahweh is real, that the God of the Hebrews is real. That, that's not what's symbolized, like, well, we don't believe in him. They just bring him into the house of their God and set him next to Dagon like, well, our God's more powerful. And so here, next to our God, we're going to put this less powerful God. But hey, we've collected him. He can be here. We can worship him too. It's just not as important as Dagon. But in verse 3, that is called into question. The people of Ashdod rose early the next day, and Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And it doesn't take a genius, a, a Bible scholar, to figure out that when someone is face downward, they are in the position of worshiping. And here, their chief god, the Philistines' chief god, Dagon, has fallen face downward before the ark of the Lord. It's interesting. The people don't seem to like get any irony here when they have to come pick up their god and set him back in his place. They're coming to grab this piece of stone and, oh, our most important God, we're going to put you back up here where you belong. It reminded me of Isaiah 44. The prophet is contrasting the living God with all the other gods. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9, says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor so see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profit profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. I'm gonna to skip down to verse fifteen, it just keeps going on like this. 
Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns over the fire. So he's taken a stump and he's burned half of it for firewood. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The the prophet is just mocking people for saying, Okay, I've got this this log or this stone, and I'm taking something and I'm making it over here. And I'm I'm doing something useful, building a fire, or if I'm carving a stone, maybe I'm making an axe or something like that. And over here, I'm taking the other side of the same piece of stone or wood or whatever, and I'm going to worship it. And that's exactly where the the Philistines are at here in chapter 5. They have to pick their God up and carry him around. They have to help him back up. Oh, you fell down. But it gets worse. They don't don't have the eyes to see the irony here. And in verse 4, the same thing happens. They rose early the next morning, and behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. It's interesting, when God knocks off Dagon's head and his hands, uh, a lot of scholars think that the symbolism here is that these are like battlefield trophies. So like at that time, if you were going into battle and you were fighting, you would cut the enemy's head or hands off to count them so that you knew how great your victory had been. You Instead of trying to pile bodies up, you'd just count hands. And, and here God has gone into Dagon's territory, as it were. He's gone onto Dagon's turf and knocked him down and cut his head and hands off. God has performed a great military victory on his own. He didn't need his people to help him here. The, the falling off of the head of Dagon also points to the fact that there is no mind in an idol. Uh, Psalm 135. Beginning in verse 15. says, the, the idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so are all who trust in them. It also points forward to chapter 17, verse 21. Chapter 17, verse 21. Chapter 17 is probably the most famous chapter in this book, and it's where David kills Goliath. And and my favorite part of that story, mostly because my boys love it, is when after David has killed Goliath, he runs over and he, this is not in any children's storybook Bible and it really bothers me. But he runs over and he chops off his head. Like he pulls Goliath's sword out and he chops his head off. And the, the boys, they're like, yeah, this is the part that we get really excited about. 
And, and that verb for to cut it off in 17, same verb as Dagon's head being broken off here in chapter 5. Same Hebrew verb. The removal of the hands points to the fact that, that Dagon has a total lack of power compared to Yahweh. The strength would be signified by the hands or the arms, and Dagon's are broken off before Yahweh. Now, as we are going to see, while Dagon's hands can't do anything in the, in the section that follows, God's hand will lie heavy. Yahweh's hand will lie heavy on the Philistines. His hand will be very active. And then in verse 5, we're given an explanation of, of a custom that apparently the readers of 1 Samuel were familiar with, that, that the Philistines would not step on the threshold in Ashdod for, for Dagon's temple. And it's because his hands and his head were on the, the threshold, and so maybe it would be disrespectful to our God to step where his broken body had laid. The Philistines obviously interpreted their their great military defeat of Israel. Remember, in two battles, they'd killed 34,000 Israelites. It had been a slaughter. And they'd, they'd counted it as a display of their own strength and the awesomeness of their God. But what we find is quite different. God is not a victim of the Philistines and their gods. Yahweh executes judgment on Dagon by taking up his own battle. We, I'm reminded of Exodus chapter 15. There's a lot of Exodus themes uh, in this in this story of the ark. Exodus 15, it's the song of Moses. He says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. God, God goes to war here on Dagon. He doesn't need his people to help him. That, a, lot of, a lot of things you'll read or pick up in a CBD magazine or read on Christian sites online will use phrases like, like that God needs you to do this or, or like somehow paint that God is dependent on us. God goes into Philistine territory here, goes into Ashdod, and he doesn't need anybody's help. He just knocks down the idol by himself. He walks onto enemy territory and walks away the obvious victor. I wonder where we are tempted to set God up in our life. What temple do we try to bring God into asking for his help with our idolatry? The Philistines, again, they didn't say, well, Yahweh must not be real. They were happy to acknowledge him as just one of their many gods. Where in our life are we tempted to just treat God as one of the things that we worship, one of the ones that we count on? Where are we essentially asking him to baptize our sin by helping us out with what we're already interested in? God's not going to be a party to this. God will be seen as supreme. There is none like him, Psalm 86 And verse 8 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7 say, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? 
God reigns supreme in the universe and over the universe. There is none who compares to him. The next thing we're going to see is God's severity. Just his hand lying heavy upon the people is how it's going to be phrased. Remember, the Israelites had viewed the presence of God represented in the ark almost as a sort of good luck charm, a guarantee to their victory in the first part of chapter 4. And God's presence among them in the ark had not brought them victory. It had ushered in defeat. And the reason for that is that the presence of a holy God among sinful people brings judgment. The people of Israel brought God in thinking it would guarantee victory, but instead it ushered in their judgment. And here we're going to see how he judges the people in, in Ashdod. Verse 6 says, I'm, I'm actually going to read uh, verse 6 all the way down into chapter 6 for a ways. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows in which there has never come a yoke, and the yoke of the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it on a box at the sides, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, we shall know it is not his hand that has struck us. It only happened by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. 
And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They neither turned to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. And I'm going to skip down uh, to verse uh, 16. And the five lords of the Philistines saw it, that, that the people had sacrificed these cows, and, and the cart had made it. And they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So, I know that was that was a lot, but the big thing here is God afflicts these people with these tumors, it says. That's what the ESV translates. If you have uh, the King James, it says emeralds, which is an archaic word for hemorrhoids. Um, we don't know for sure from this word. It's, it's a pretty unique word. Uh, we, don't, we don't know what the nature of this affliction specifically is. Are they tumors? Are they boils? Are they hemorrhoids? They'd be awful hemorrhoids if they're acting like this. Uh, are they some kind of lesion? One one common theory is it could be the bubonic plague, actually, um, because it it doesn't say this in chapter five in the English text, but in one of the I think it's the Greek translation it inserts that there is also this infestation of mice, which is hinted at again in chapter six. We read that, and and so we know that the plague was spread by rodents, and so that could be it here, where you would have these great uh, sores that would, that would take place in the really soft parts of your skin under your arms and the groin area that were associated with the plague. We don't have the plague attested to in history until a couple centuries after this, so we don't, we don't know for sure. Whatever it is, is obviously devastating people to the point where people are dying. When, when the ark's getting brought to Ekron, the people freak out and say, do not bring that thing here, absolutely not. I wonder, I wonder if you remember uh, one of the things we said last week, that, that another word for God's glory is heaviness, a weight. The, the weight of God, the glory of God, had departed from Israel, but the weight of God, his heavy hand, is lying heavily upon the Philistines. In verse 4, Dagon's hands get knocked off. But Yahweh's hands work just fine. Verse 6, his hand was heavy on the land. Verse 7, his hand is hard against us. Verse 9, his hand was against the city. Verse 11, his hand was very heavy there. Chapter 6, verse 3, his hand does not turn. Verse 5 of chapter 6, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of us. Chapter 9 of verse 6, his hand that struck us. God, God's hand is devastating the land of the Philistines. That the God's presence was among the Philistines goes from being a point of pride for them. Hey, we've captured him. We've brought him in. This is great. To being their greatest trauma. In, in chapter 5, verse 11, the whole city of Ekron is pleading that the ark of God 
not come near them. Where it says in in the ESV here, it says, They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. A really literal translation of that would actually be, let it not kill me and my people. And that doesn't make sense in English because it's multiple people saying this, but but I think part of what's happening is that, that would, it's actually a, a direct repeat of what Pharaoh says in Exodus chapter 8. And this is specifically after the plague of the frogs, which was only the second of the ten plagues. Which is why the diviners say, don't harden your hearts like the Egyptians. It took them a long time to figure this out. But Exodus 8, 8, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. That's the, the people of Ekron are saying, don't let this come near me and my people. Me and my people. We are scared of the God of Israel coming among us. They're so desperate desperate to get rid of God that they call together the priests and the diviners and say, what do we do to get rid of this box, this God of Israel? Chapter 6, verse 4, they suggest this common practice to placate an angry deity. You just make an image of whatever it is that they're afflicting you with, and hopefully they'll be happy with that and leave you alone. So they're saying make an image of these tumors or these boils or whatever, and make an image of the rodents that are attacking you. Some translations say mice, some say rats. Just make images of those, put them in a box, send the box back. And then, just so that we know it's for real and it's not a coincidence, don't don't hook up your normal oxen to pull this wagon that'll stay on the road because that's what they're trained to do. Hook up some milk cows and take their calves away. Well, they're not naturally going to pull the, the wagon. They would naturally just stand there or try to get to their calves. But if you, you know if that wagon heads for Israel, well, it must be their God is taking his box home. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. Verse 12, it, it tells us it was a success. God, God's hand had been the one who was afflicting the Philistines all along. And what should we take from God's severity? Very severe hand with the Philistines. I mean, didn't we say last week that they were his instruments of judgment against Israel? He used them. And they were. But they they weren't God's puppets. He didn't make them do sinful things. He used them in their sin to punish his people. But they were still volitional actors responsible for their sins. God is perfectly capable of using the sinful sinful human or sinful nation A to punish sinful human or nation B and still holds A responsible for their actions. Israel had all but abandoned God, and they needed to be reminded that his presence is what they needed not in some cultic sense where they have the right box and they do the right things and they carry him into a battle with them, but they needed his personal presence with them to bless them, which they would only experience by hearing and believing and obeying his word. He used the Philistines to remind them of their need. And the Philistines at the same time must be shown that it is not by their own power that Israel fell. 
They are guilty as well before the God who they thought they had conquered. We're not going to turn there, but if you're interested in like that dynamic, seeing that play out more thoroughly, read the book of Habakkuk, where the prophet kind of has an argument with God about how can you use this nation over here? And God says, oh, I'm going to punish you with them, and then I'm going to punish them too, because you're all choosing to rebel against me. Chapter 6, verse 16, the five lords see that the the ark of God has returned and, and the people have sacrificed the cows and they go home. Verse 17 and 18, uh, it, it refers to a stone that is a witness, and, in, and that stone is where they had sacrificed the, the ark, or not sacrificed the ark, sacrificed the cows, and it, it was witnessing to God's total domination of the Philistines, witnessing to his total victory, witnessing to the fact that his hand had rested severely upon this nation. Final thing we're going to see is God's sanctity. Verses 13 through 15, when this ark of God comes back, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark. They rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and it stopped there, and a great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And then down in verse 19, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came down and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to the charge of the ark of the Lord. So in verses 13 through 15, we get a good response from the people of Beth Shemesh. They saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. That's exactly the right response. They should be happy that, that, as it were, this representation of God's presence has come home. And though the sacrifice they offer isn't technically right, if they're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord, they should be unblemished males. And here they have a couple of milk cows. The narrator doesn't seem to give us any indication that God's unhappy with them. They're just exuberant and happy that that the ark is back and they're sacrificing what they have. Um, So Leviticus 1 would say they weren't technically right, but God doesn't seem too angry with them. They're finding their joy in the return of the ark from its exile. And it seems for a moment that this story is going to end then happily because, hey, the ark came back. But then we get to verse 19, and we find God continuing to strike people. The reason seems to be some form of irreverence. Gazing into, it, that could also be translated, they were gazing at, they were staring at the ark of God. Now, the Levites who are here, the Levites who saw this sacrifice take place, they should have known that the ark of God is supposed to be covered. Like the things that set inside... They're supposed to set inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. 
those sins are all supposed to be covered and only the high priest sees them and he but for just a moment and here it's just out in the open and they seem to be gawking at it and god punishes them for that the second question here is is not just why does he punish them but how many die uh if you have an older translation, even even something like the NASB probably says uh, that 50,000 and 70 died. Uh, if you've got a newer translation, it probably says 70 died. <laughs> and, and what's going on there? Uh, the, the main Hebrew text that's been used for hundreds of years is called the Masoretic text. And it says 50,000, it says, literally it says, 50 men, no, 70 men, 50,000 men, okay? A lot of other Hebrew manuscripts and the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint that was done, you know, before, long before Jesus was born, they say 50 men. So most scholars think it, they say 70 men, sorry, not 50, 70. Getting the five and the seven swapped in my head. The... The most likely explanation is that the 50,000 gets added somewhere along the line in the passing down of the Masoretic text. Um, it's probably 70 men. There probably weren't 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh. Some people will get really defensive about that. Like, well, you're just trying to shrink down the numbers in the Bible. I don't think that's really the case, though, because think of Beth Shemesh. Remsen would be a really big town in Israel at that time, 1,700 people. Now, if you've got 1,700 people and 70 men die, like 70 people just die in Remsen right now, that would be odd. What would people do? That would, that's like 5% of your population. That would be devastating. So so I don't think we're, we're making this seem like not a big deal. We're just trying to understand, like, what is the actual number here? It's probably 70 people. And... And this would be causing them to freak out, which they do. They, the people realize they can't stand before the holiness of God. He's, he's judging their sin, too. It's not just the Philistines that get judged. And so they, they call up their buddies in Kiriath-Jerim and like, hey, get this thing out of here. I don't know the guys in Kiriath-Jerim. Are they like, do they feel like Ekron here? Like, why do you want us to die? Uh, but... But they, they apparently don't, and they take it. Uh, it goes to the, the house of this guy named Abinadab, and, and it stays there for 20 years. It stays there for 20 years. Here we are at the end of this, what, what's called the Ark narrative, just chapters 4 through the very first part of chapter 7 here. And the people are still learning the lesson that they needed to learn at the front end. That God's presence isn't always good for you. It is the deepest need of every single human being, every single heart, every single nation. There's, there's nothing we need more than the presence of God. But it is a sign of sure judgment if we have sin that isn't dealt with. So in conclusion, I just want to meditate for a moment on chapter 6, verse 20. Then the Beth, men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before him? Psalm 130, which we read to open, asked the same question. If you were to mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? If we look at that, 
130 has an answer. But with you, there is forgiveness, verse 4. How can there be forgiveness for our iniquities? Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Christ nailed your sin to the cross. And if we cling to Christ, the record that stood against us is canceled. It's paid for. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 130 also tells us why God does this. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Even for the believer in Jesus Christ, there is a right reverence and fear for the Lord. We cannot treat him like a trinket or something to be taken for granted. We pray our Father in heaven. We must revere him as the Holy Father that he is. But unlike the men of Beth Shemesh who say, who can stand before God, get him out of here. We shouldn't run away from his holiness. We shouldn't ask him to leave. We should be desperately thankful for his provision for us in Christ, a provision that allows even sinners like us, those who deserve his heavy hand of judgment, to stand before him. Who can stand before him? Only those who are clothed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So the hymn says, In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I claim. Let's pray. Father God, we... We deserve your judgment just as much as the Philistines. And yet, in Christ, you have made the way for us to be right with you. Would you help us to cling to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.